Welcome to episode 17 of the Camera Shake podcast, the podcast about cameras, photography, videography, and everything that's got anything to do with that. Um, today's a very special episode because we have a guest on the show. It's none other than Mr. Dave Cox himself. If you cast your mind back to, well, very much to the very beginning of uh, the Camera Shake podcast, I think it was probably about, was it episode two, three? I want to like say one, two, or three. Yeah. We picked up on an article on Petapixel um, that was talking about some guy, i.e. Dave Cox, going out in the middle of the night, light painting cars in the middle of lockdown. And uh, we're going to play in some of the images uh, in a bit. And uh, I'm sure you'd agree, those are phenomenal images of cars. Now, the fascinating thing about that was not only that there were great images of cars that were light painted, but also, of course, that they were taken in literally in people's driveways. Is that right, Dave? Uh, not quite driveways. I wasn't stepping on people's property. They're out, <laughs> on, the, uh, out on the street. Like, you, right, you've got to be right. a bit careful about stepping onto people's private property yeah, yeah, in America. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that could be dangerous. Uh, yeah. So how did you, I mean, how did you come up with the idea? Um, well, like when lockdown and, and quarantine struck in, in Los Angeles, it, it was you weren't really allowed to go outside and then, then it released a little bit so you can go out for some exercise. And mm. because I hadn't been out for like two weeks other than to the grocery store, I was starting to get a bit depressed, mm. a bit stir crazy. I couldn't shoot anything. And you know, like it just starts affecting you. And my wife basically got sick and tired of me being in a bad mood, which you can understand when you're living with someone else. Mm. Yeah. So we started going out for some walks and, I'm quite lucky where I live in um, in Venice Beach. There's a, there's a lot of cool cars around. I started noticing them. I was like, oh, man, I wish I could photoshop, uh, photograph some of these cars. But you can't go and knock on someone's door. You can't like reach out and organize shoots. You're not allowed to gather with people that aren't in your household. So that bummed me out a little bit. But then I thought, well, I, I could just light paint them where they're sat. And it was one particular car that I saw, which was... Uh, I think it's a 1962 Ford Falcon, and it was an amazing like teal blue color, and I, I adored it. And that was the one car that wanted me to like start this process. Uh, and because I'm a bit anal when it comes to posting on Instagram, it's like I can't do one. I need to have at least three. Yeah, <laughs> of course, for sure. Yeah. So then began uh, the, the then began like the hunt to go and find more cars, and I. I found much more than three, like pretty quickly. And yeah. so what I do is I go around for a walk, like at lunchtime, just to get out and get some steps and get some exercise and fresh air and not look at a monitor anymore. And I would, I'd see the cars and I'd like basically uh, take a photograph on my iPhone. So that way I had the location of where the car was. Mm. And then I'd come back at night and hope or pray or whatever that it would still be there. Now the Ford Falcon actually was undercover at night, so I couldn't light paint it. And I went back twice to try and see if I could light and paint it. Mm. And it was still undercover. So I left a little post-it note on the dash during the day, just saying, hey, really like your car. Can I take a photograph at night? So can you leave your cover off between the hours of 7 <laughs> and 9 p.m.? Here's my email address, here's my Instagram, just so you know I'm not a lunatic and trying to steal your car or anything like that. Mm. And we spoke and he said, yeah, sure, I'll leave it off. and then. Great. I went around and photographed it and then messaged him saying, hey, you can put your cover back on. I'm, I'm done. Thanks. Cool. But yeah, that's kind of how the series went. And it kind of spiraled. And the more I did it, the more I liked yeah. it. Like, it was kind of a new technique. I'm normally much more particular when it comes to light painting. And this is much more um, organic. And it was just a bit more, uh, I don't know, free. Like I, I wasn't really being, paying close attention. So it's literally one exposure for the sky and then one exposure for the car. And, and that was it. So did you... Did you um... Did you always contact the owners of the cars before you went to photograph no, them, or did you like ninja it out there? That was the only person I spoke to. Right. And you would have thought, with people leaving their pride and joy outside of their house, that right. if you see a bloke dressed in black with a camera <laughs> and a tripod around tea time, you're going to be like, well, what's he doing? Right. And I was quite cautious of this. Um, and so I, I'd be very slow and methodical in putting the camera gear down and the tripod down so it looked obvious what I was doing Yeah. and tried my best not to look shifty whilst dressed completely head to toe in black. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But um, most shoots lasted less than a minute. So Oh, really? Okay. Wow, okay. Yeah, I, was, I was only at each car for about two or three minutes total. That includes setting up the tripod, getting the camera out, getting the settings dialed in, 
right. shooting it and leaving. Did you um? Did you literally do one pass on a car? Or... One pass per car, yeah. Right. Wow. Okay. So I think what would be really interesting would be to just to kind of talk about the process of light painting in general, mm-hmm. because I think for maybe for for some of our listeners and or viewers. Um, you know, when we talk about light painting, it might not necessarily be obvious as to how that actually even works, yeah. right? So yeah. what do you need, to, like, how do you light paint something? So uh, light painting is using a light source to illuminate um, a subject. You can do it with, like, most people think of lighting a subject, they use like strobes or a, or a hot lamp focused at something, whereas light mm-hmm. painting, you're moving through an image. So basically you're taking a small light and making it massive because you're actually traveling along with the light. Um, cameras record light, I dress in black, they don't record shadow, they only mm. record the absence of light, so that's how I don't show up. And then you just get the light streak in which you paint away with the exposure you took for the background. Do you dress in black for a particular reason other than yeah. being a ninja? Yeah, and it looks cool, but yeah. Right, cool. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> what kind of light did you use for that? This is the light itself. So if you can see, it's got an orange gel on top of it, so you can actually I won't lie, it kind of looks like a lightsaber. Well, well. Yeah. So you used a lightsaber to photograph cars. That's just put that out. You are my hero. I'm the, the nighttime Jedi. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a very like, bright light. Darth, and Darth Dave. Darth Dave. Darth Dave. Um, yeah, and that's its lowest intensity. It's actually incredibly bright when you turn it all the way up. It, it, it gives me a migraine to. Um, to look at it so i tend to like if i'm doing particularly challenging car and i have it at full intensity i wear sunglasses at night right. so is, is that like wow. a is that like a specialist light or is it is it meant for photography um, or is it? it's a video light i think so it's, uh, i can't remember the, the the brand of it i think it's called camera plus it has many different names it's made by a few different manufacturers oh, right, okay. um and i think it's just a, a bicolor um led light for video mm-hmm. production um and i just yeah, I just saw it online. I was like, "That's a, it wasn't expensive, so let's let's get one." Mm. That's amazing. And you know, we'll 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 direct um, all of our listeners and viewers to your YouTube channel because obviously you have um, lots of tutorials on there. Where I know you go into quite some depth about how mm. you go around light light painting. So everyone who's watching and listening, go and check those out because it's unreal. But um, you. you know the, what? You, something I'd certainly like to you know l- know a little bit more about, if possible, is mm-hmm. um, you know uh, how do you go about how do you go about setting up your camera? What how do you go about knowing what are the right settings to set when you know you're pitch black and you're running a light over you? You, know, you could be running a light over for five seconds. It could be fifteen if you're doing one pass in a car. I, I I don't know, but how, how does that how does that process kind of work for you? Uh, yeah, that's that's quite interesting. It's actually a process of elimination. Okay. So, um, first of all, you want to shoot at the lowest ISO possible because you don't want a huge amount of ambient light in there. So, start at ISO 100. Um, I use uh, a shutter speed of 10 seconds um, okay. purely because it gives me enough time to get from the front of the car to the rear of the car in a smooth manner, and it gives me plenty of space. Mm. I sometimes fluctuate on that. Sometimes I go to five seconds, sometimes it'd be 20 seconds, depending on how much distance I need to cover, but typically it's 10 seconds. Um, for the aperture, the aperture is the amount of light that you're going to be hitting your sensor, so you've got obviously time, uh, sensitivity, but the aperture is the amount of light that's coming in, and so this depends on how much intensity you want to put through the light. Now normally, I used to shoot at f8, um, but recently, um, I actually like the shallower depth of field a little bit. So if you've got street lights in the background, it's quite nice to be able to like throw those a little bit out of focus. Mm-hmm. So I've been uh, like opening up to about f5.6, or sometimes I've done stuff at f2 before, which is a bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. But um, I tend to use an aperture that allows me to keep the car in focus because it makes it much easier when you're merging passes together in Photoshop and getting mm-hmm. a nice clean path around the car. Um, yeah, so that's basically it. So yeah, but you, you know that you want to shoot the lowest ISO. You know that you want to, you know, get through the scene in a decent amount of time. So that really only leads to your, your aperture values. And then your aperture also depends on how bright your light is. That's why I went for an incredibly bright one, so I could have a bit more flexibility. But the other thing is I don't, I don't actually do this at the middle of the night. I, I rarely do it at pitch black. 
if I was going, if anyone's thinking about getting into light painting, shooting mm -hmm. in pitch black is the easiest way to start because you can see immediately whether you've gone wrong or whether mm -hmm. you're right. I turned to shoot just after blue hour mm -hmm. where there's still color in the sky because I like to have more ambient light in there. And that's one thing I've been pushing myself more and more and more to do is have more ambient light in it. It makes it much harder to light paint. It makes it much harder to make sure you're invisible as you move through the frame. But mm. I think it changes the feel of the image a little bit. It doesn't look so forced or artificial. It kind of looks mm. a bit more natural and stylized, which I like. When you're, when you're shooting, let's say you're shooting in pitch black and you're, you're walking through the frame and you're lighting the car, mm -hmm. what happens to the background? Do you normally then end up with a really dark background? Or yeah. how do how do you uh, how do you deal with the background itself? So a photographer once told me that um, automotive photography is just landscapes photography with a car in it, mm. and I don't think enough people pay attention to that. Right. So a lot of people will focus solely on lighting the car. I want to learn a new skill. I want to make a car look good. But then it often looks terrible at the end of it because they've completely neglected the surroundings of where the car is. Mm. So I like to make the background just as important as the foreground or as, as the subject matter. So I therefore light the background as well. I typically do, what I'll do is I'll, I'll stand and just like hold the light in a single spot mm -hmm. and to create a hard shadow. And then I'll look at the back of the camera and see how that looks and then work out if I need to fill in any details um, in the shadow, in, sorry, in the background by just adding more light. And then I just light the car itself. And by doing that, if you if you give the car like a, a directional shadow, you kind of know how you're going to light the car. Then it gives you an area to focus on or, or a style to focus on. And it makes sense as to what the lighting, so that all the lighting matches is what I'm trying to say. And sometimes if you're in an ambient location where there is like a street lamp or something, most people shy away from that. But I like to use that or embellish that and mm -hmm. create the background from that as well. So use that light as the key light to give you a nice directional shadow and then just fill in the car with the light mm. painting. So how did you come up with the, the whole idea of light painting in the first place? Did you, um, did you know how to do that before lockdown or was it just something where you thought like, you know, when you, when you were in lockdown, you saw this car, you kind of think, oh, well, I need a way to photograph these cars and that's, that might be a method of doing it. Or, or did you have, had, have you done it in the past? I mean, that's what I'm asking. Yeah. Um, I've been light painting for about, five years, four years now. Right. Um, I was actually inspired by a photographer called Nick Williams. Um, back in the days when everyone used to be on Flickr, uh, I used to see... Oh, wow. uh, yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, little, little trip MySpace down memory lane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I used to see his images pop up. He's also a friend of Dan Fegens as well. Like, so, again, small world. Um, and I saw his images and they were like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I was like, what on... How? how what like, i didn't understand and um rightly so he was a little bit cagey about like telling us what his settings were and like, mm. what he's actually doing because like it was his kind of style um so for like i used to be an engineer and i'm a cgi artist so i have a very quick way and method of reverse engineering how things are done so i, I figured it out kind of quickly and then tried it like as soon as i bought this never doing light painting at all and then I tried it out and I was like, yeah, got it. I understand now. Like, <laughs> cool. So Dave, obviously you're, you know, you, you, it's hard to believe given how we've been talking to you and what we've been talking about that you're not actually a full-time photographer, right? No, I am not, no. So and you, you mentioned there that you're a CGI artist. So that's your, your, your day job, so yep. to speak, correct? Yeah, I am a, I'm a creative lead and lead automotive CGI artist for Taylor James in Los Angeles. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from Los Angeles. I'm originally from London, hey. which is where I used to work. Yeah. Um, but we, I moved out here August 2nd last year. So I've, I've literally been oh. here just over a year. Oh, I didn't realize it was it'd only been a year. Wow. And did, did, you, did, I, you, did I, you move for in, work or I, yeah, I'm assuming yeah. you did? Um, I used to work for... Uh, a competitor beforehand. I was, I was with them for four years, and Taylor James had been interested in me, and we'd been talking on and off for a couple of years. Um, and then one day we, they said, "Oh, um, we would like you to come in." And then eventually, with the goal to go and work in Los Angeles, and I was like, "Right, yeah. sign me up." <laughs> <laughs> 
That's incredible. Um, because that was that was a bit like a goal of mine for a long time was to is to work abroad. Um, and it wasn't until I went on a couple of shoots for work out in Los Angeles that I was like, no, I really like it. I can see myself living here, and you know, rest is history. That's, that's amazing. And there's a couple of things I want to dig into straight away on on all of that. Is um, you you mentioned that you were an, an engineer as well previously. Um, yeah. How, how did you move from being an engineer to 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 CGI artist? What? Oh yeah, that's that an interesting story. So um, I went to university in Birmingham. Um, I, I was studying product design and engineering. Um, straight out of university, I got a job as a, a design and applications engineer. Um, I used to make. Uh, fittings and uh, I used to design fittings for like London Underground and hazardous areas and, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, it was a good job. I liked it. I was good at it. I like, had a great team of people. But whilst I was at university, in my final year, in my final module, they showed us something called product visualization, more commonly known as CGI. <laughs> and I started doing, they said, make anything you want, make it look as realistic as possible. And I was like, you mother, why have you only just shown me that this is a thing? <laughs> and so I've got an engineering degree, have to get an engineering degree job. But like that, that little module that really like hit it home for me. So in my spare time, I used to model stuff. I used to model, um, the first thing I modeled was a BMW E30 M3, like one of my all-time favorite cars. And I spent two years modeling this, like everything, interior, engine, wheels, drivetrain, breaks like everything completely from scratch and I, I really really loved it and I was like the more I did it the more I wanted to do some work with it so I got the odd like freelance job um, I made like some sunglasses for an American company I did a couple of other things and I was like right I need to get, I, need, I want to turn this into a day job and so I started applying got told to go away because I didn't have the experience and then finally one company in London decided to take a chance on me and they, they bought me in. So I had to move from Birmingham to London, which is roughly double the cost of living. I then had to take a 6,000 pound pay cut as well. Um, so like my first year in London was a very, very tough one. I, I sold a lot of cameras and a lot of lenses just to pay rent. Yeah. Um, and I was doing uh, product visualization for buildings. So like architecture. So like, new hotels, new, new houses and stuff like that. Um, and I, I thought it was great. I was, I was in this like new magical industry, completely self-taught, didn't really know what I was doing, but every day was a school day, you know, like you're just constantly mm. consuming from your peers and it was, it was fantastic. Um, but my heart wasn't like with buildings. I, I wanted to do cars. So I moved to a different company uh, over in Essex and started working with brands like Ford and McLaren. And that was phenomenal. We got to learn. I learned a huge amount more there. I thought I knew a lot, and then I learned a ton more. So I like being humbled in that way. I like to be taught new things. I think it's great. Um, yeah, and then from there, I moved to another company in London, and then finally to Taylor Jones. So that was about 10, 10, 11 years ago. It's such a journey that it, it, it always inspires me, stuff like that, because... I worked. I worked in. Uh, I worked for Amazon in London for yeah. about 15, 15 years, and you know, um, then decided that I'm done. I, I couldn't do yeah. that anymore, and just went self-employed to do. Ver I'm doing various bits. You know, yeah. a bit of photography, a bit of videography, a lot of audio work, playing bands, things like that. Anything to make up a wage to to pay the bills. But you went straight in really early on at doing something you love. Yeah, and that is the kind of thing that just really, really fi I find it inspiring. Mm. Oh, because don't get me wrong, I, it was terrifying. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. But it was it wasn't until I was in my early thirties that I started to just think, mm, I need to do something I actually enjoy, and yeah. actually want to do, and to be able yeah. to do that a bit, a bit, you know, sooner than that is absolutely fantastic. I love it, absolutely love yeah. that. I I kind of felt I was an engineer for like three years I think it was in the end so like I was just aware that I'm I'm getting older I'm setting more roots down you know it's like now or never I need I need to go into it yeah. um, and it's always kind of risky going into a whole new industry when mm -hmm. you have no formal training or qualifications I, I was 
everything I knew I got from magazines, forums, or YouTube back in the day. Like, mm. So it's all like, I had to learn new software as well because the stuff that I knew wasn't what they used. So, that, you know, that, so that's your sort of CGI background. How did the photography get into that? Like, how did you get into photography in the first place? Yeah, that's an interesting one as well. Um, I think everyone likes photography from a young age and it kind of like bothers me a little bit. But like, oh, when I was eight, I had a camera to shut up. No, you didn't. everyone had a little point and shoot okay but that doesn't make you a photographer um for me when i was living in birmingham my wife was uh doing her masters and her um lecturer said it might be a good idea for you to like start a fashion blog so that's kind of the industry you want to go into start your own fashion blog and so she needed a photographer and I was there by proximity because we were living together. Um, and she had a Canon 1000D, I think it was. So I started taking photographs for her. I was like, oh, I, quite, I quite like this. Don't know what I'm doing, but I quite like doing this. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do this more, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to have to learn it. So I bought a Canon AE1 program off of eBay for £30, and it came with two lenses. And over the next two years, I probably spent about, Two thousand pounds ruining film, but like I learned the hard way. I had a little notebook where I write down all my EXIF data, like what film I was using, what shutter speed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so I, I taught myself like completely manually, like the hard way. And then after I felt proficient with that, and I didn't ruin a film every time I shot on it, I was like, well, maybe I'll go and buy my own camera. Um, so yeah, continuing taking photographs for my wife, then started doing portraits with. Uh, models, this is the days before Instagram, so I think it was like, I want to say Model Mayhem or something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or contacting people on Flickr and stuff like that. And started shooting models, and then I had a couple of friends that asked me to go and shoot their weddings. Uh, then I had a few friends that asked me to go and, like, they pay me to go and shoot their weddings. Um, then started working with a few other wedding photographers. Um, and yeah, so that's how I like sunk my teeth into it. So I started knowing my gear and stuff like that. But it wasn't until we moved to London that I was like, um, I like cars and I always have. Like I used to go and watch Rally Cross with my dad down in Lydon Hill, like in Kent. Um, and I haven't really photographed cars at all. And I used to stand on the side of the streets in London, like panning taxis and stuff like that, trying to get the technique down. And then I basically blagged my way into an event called Drift All Stars and that was down in Wimbledon. Um, I had, I bought on the day my public liability insurance. I had to go over the road to screw fix. I think it was to go and buy a high vis jacket. Um, <laughs> I had one battery and one memory card, no CPL filter at all. And, uh, by about 10 30 in the morning, I was standing on the infield of a, a drift track. So, <laughs> which was, pretty alarming and also yeah. I was on cloud nine. I was in, I was had like high horsepower cars literally six feet away from me sideways. And that is actually when I met um, Dan Fijan whilst at that event. Um, he kind of like took me under his wing and gave me some pointers and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then during lunchtime, we would like go around and explore the track and we're chatting and he goes, Oh, look, we uh we like there's a few of them there and they all shot for a, um, a website called fueltopia and they were like oh would you like to like come and join and so dan really was like quite formative in like my car photography in so much as he would help me um with advice he'd get me access to stuff he would uh drive me to like car shoots and stuff like that so um it was really good having him as like a mentor to kind of lean on and ask advice and you know grow because I really had not much idea of what I was doing. So, and he also introduced me to like the, the visual storytelling side of things as well. So obviously if you're taking a website, you can't just bang up a set of photographs and, and leave it at that. We, we had to learn to write like um, an article to talk about it. So you, you not just describe the car. You want to like, talk to the owner, find the backstory, like talk about some of the technical if you want to. It depends on what your readership was. But that was, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And from there, just, yeah, I carried on shooting with Fieldtopia. Um, and then eventually I picked up a few magazines um, that wanted me to go and do features for them. Um, so I started 
bouncing around doing a few features for like Fast Car or Japanese Performance Magazine. Mm. Uh, I then got picked up, I think, on Facebook by a, a Norwegian editor because I'd been to an event in Norway called Gatbill. Um, and he had seen my work and then he was like, look, I can't attend the event. Would you mind going in my place? We'll pay you like X amount per vehicle and we want like six. And I was like, well, that's going to pay for the whole trip and then some. So I was like, yep, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what was cool about that is like uh, Kai, my editor, was a super nice guy and he would allow me to uh, keep the features for the Norwegian magazine, but I was also allowed to resell them to uh, UK magazines as well. So it made it like definitely worth my while going there. Um, and yeah, that's basically kind of brings us up to the present day. I mainly shoot feature cars rather than events now purely because I like getting to know the owner. I like spending time with the car. Um, also going to events is, is quite expensive and takes mm-hmm. up a lot of time and it's normally a whole weekend and there's a lot of travel involved. Definitely can't do that right now. So, Nick and me, actually, uh, we did some car shoots recently. Oh, yeah. And um, so, but we used a slightly different technique. Um, we uh, basically lit individual parts of the car individually mm-hmm. and then um, composited the whole thing together um after the wow. fact and so i think the first the first car we did a test shoot with my with my old raf4 yeah and uh, i think we ended up it was it's over a hundred shots that uh were composited together so you know uh-huh. you like individual it's like you like the wing mirror and then you like the i don't know the tire and the rim of the tire and everything else and then you basically you uh you composite all these individual bits together that was the best looking RAV4 you've ever seen. It was it was <laughs> sexy. Yeah, oh, it's sexy. But it's a completely different. It's a completely different technique, of course, to yeah. to light painting. And they look they look very different as well. They, they, yeah, it's a completely different yeah. look. Um, so uh, so yeah, so that was that was our experience um, with uh, with with shooting cars in that respect. It's a completely different process, obviously. Yeah. Um, but uh, but nevertheless, it was you know it was good fun. Yeah, it really was, and yeah, yeah obviously. Compositing a hundred odd photos is extremely time-consuming. Um, yes. yeah, there's a lot, lot to go in there. But I'm, I'm guessing um, that with the technique that you you employ, Dave, uh, actually perhaps that's slightly quicker for you. Um, I don't know how how many passes do you normally take on uh, on a on a on a car when you you're like painting in your technique. So the truthful answer is as many as it takes. Okay, hmm. fair enough. But typically, um, if I, I plan to shoot one for the background, headlights and tail lights, mm-hmm. one for the side of the car, one for the front of the car, and potentially a rim light like around the back. So like five is what I always aim for. It really depends. Every car is completely different. It depends whether it's a solid car paint or a metallic. It depends yeah. if it's like black or white or if it's a color. It depends if the car's wrapped, um, because that has a huge difference to the amount of fall off you get on the light. Mm. So there's there's tons of like factors to it, but I just I I shoot until I I've got what I want and it looks the way I want it. So mm. everyone everyone's different, and which is like what I like about automotive photography is there's a million different ways that you can do it. Like you can mm. just use daylight, you can use like morning or evening sunlight, you can do it at night, you can use a flashlight, you can use a flash gun. Mm. constant lighting whatever you want to do there's there's tons and tons of different ways and that's just static stuff as well yeah, yeah. not to mention motion pieces as well yeah i mean it's, it's interesting what you were saying about um different types of of paint reacting in different ways we found that um we uh we we shot the the raf4 and then a little while later we shot a ferrari and the the modifiers that we used on the uh, on the raf yeah, really didn't work on a Ferrari at all. It was just no. you, got, you know we were getting like weird reflections, and it was just not working. And we had to kind of you know do a number of different passes, just trying out different modifiers, just to see what would give us the best result. And yeah. it was just a really different experience um, mm. from from the first shoot. So, so that was that was really something we realized right then. And then is that the different cars, different paints really react in completely different ways. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just a matter of just trying lots of different things. It, it makes sense when you talk about it afterwards. When you think like about this, it, right? sure, yeah, absolutely. 
certainly wasn't something that came to the forefront of my mind that you know oh it's, it's painted you know it's yeah <laughs> especially because on the raft we we kept everything really soft yeah like yeah. big soft boxes and everything else um and it worked really well um on the ferrari that really didn't work it really didn't work at all maybe it was because of the way that the uh the car shaped and all the you know all the round kind of course yeah. and everything yeah. Um, but actually we found that just, uh, you know, using a basic reflector and just literally firing hard light at it gave us the best results on that. Yeah. It's just really unexpected, yeah. but it's, you know, that's the, that's the, the thing that I really loved about it was that it's, it is, like you say, an everyday school day and like you learn something new every day, you know, the end result's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but it took us, took us a while to get there. We managed to uh, reduce the overall number of shots down from hundred to 30. So, nice. <laughs> so, you know, we're getting there. Not quite at five yet, but, you know, working on that. But, uh, but yeah, so as for us, there's something we're all just experimenting with a little bit. I'll tell you what, it's going to be almost dusk when we're finished up with, with this tonight. Mm -hmm. Undo my car? <laughs> well, do we have a light? That's the question, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, well actually, in fact, we've got some LEDs. Yeah, so we, we can try it. We can take some out. You've got yeah, a torch on your iPhone. Well, there you go. I'll it might take a while, but it would do something. Yeah, once it stopped raining, because it's like a bit of a dilute. Oh, yeah, true. true, so, true, true, true uh, yeah, true, light true. painting in the rain is not fun. I've okay. done that before. Um, right. It's, it's quite yeah, alarming, cool. like holding a very powerful battery and your camera's getting all wet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so, Dave, apart from light painting cars and um, doing CGI stuff, you also run a YouTube channel. I do, yes. Cool. So, um, I've checked out a number of your videos, and of course, some of them um, explain how to do light painting in the first place. So, for any of our viewers and listeners, if you're interested um, in uh, in checking that out, then we'll put the link to the YouTube channel in the description. Um, but so, how did you get started on YouTube? Yeah, um, it was light painting that got me started in YouTube, right. um, <laughs> purely because I got sick and tired. This can sound egotistical, and I, I really don't mean it. To me, but I got sick and tired of being asked like over Instagram or Facebook or whatever, how did you do that? Yeah. So I, I thought I kind of felt like it's a necessity just to make a video so I can I can answer the question. Mm. And then, there you go, that's how I did it. Um, but social media being the hungry beast that it is, one video is never enough. Hence why there's so many that I've, yeah. I've put out. But yeah, that was that, that was kind of a necessity and like. I, oh, well, I can't remember the exact year that I started. I think it was like 2018 or 2017. It was one of the two, I can't remember. Might even be 2019, I'm not sure. But it just felt like now's the time that I should be doing it. Like photography is like losing its traction. People consume their media in a different way. They don't read blog posts and as much as they used to. Like You look at our site traffic and it's just dips like on, on blogs. But so people have content available on their phones a lot easier now. So the uh, video is a lot more engaging, I feel. So that's kind of why I wanted to do it. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, like I wasn't very good at it. And in my opinion, I'm still not that good at it at all. But because I'm not good at something, it makes me want to do it more. I, I, I get hungry and I want to go after that. And um, yeah, it was quite a humbling experience at first because like, I was trying to... I think I was, yeah, I was trying to film it on my 5D Mark III, which has amazing autofocus and stills, but it has no autofocus in video. So I had to pre-focus every time. So I had to use a light stand to like put it there and I go, right, that's where my eye is going to be. Okay, move it out of the way. I shoot everything on a Nikon D750. It's terrible. Yeah. The video autofocus is non-existent, basically. Yeah. But I actually make all my YouTube videos with a, a Nikon, uh, no, a Canon uh, M50, so a tiny entry-level mirrorless yes. camera. But it's phenomenal. I, I, it's, it does great. And the, and the face tracking on it, I could be on the other side of the room and it picks me up. It's, it's yeah, amazing. Nice. Yeah, you know, I found this. I found this with um, I've got a, a Fuji X100F. Yeah. And although you know, it's not necessarily a camera that's very well known for its video performance or anything like that, but the uh, face tracking is pretty good. And actually, the video, you know, coming straight out of the camera without any, like, color grading or anything like that, mm. it looks pretty damn good, you know? Yeah. It's actually, it's one of these things, I mean, if it wasn't for the, like, 12-minute, you know, recording mm. limit, which for, like, podcasting, video podcasting, it isn't, you know, doesn't really yeah, work yeah. very well. Yeah, it's, it's not. 
But generally speaking, like to produce videos at home, man, I, I completely, I would use that a million times over, over the Nikon, yeah. you know? Yeah. And although it seems just like a relatively small kind of point and shoot kind of type of a camera, um, it just, you know, surprising how good it actually is. But, and, and sometimes having a smaller camera is like less intimidating to sure, also, yeah. get, get started. Yeah. Um, and like, well, I, I, I just assumed I'd be okay at YouTube and it's, it's, it's a lot more work than I actually thought it was ever going to be. It's, yeah. <laughs> It, you guys know it's, it's super hard. Like there's so yeah, much yeah, you have to do. Like for a six minute video, there's probably two hours worth of filming and probably 16 hours worth of uh, editing behind it. And, yeah, and, so. and actually that's, that's something that's well worth touching on is the production mm. value in your, your YouTube videos is awesome. Thank you, man. It's awesome. They're mm. a pleasure to watch. It doesn't matter what the topic is. They're just really <laughs> enjoyable to watch because you've clearly taken time an effort to make it the best that you can within a reasonable am amount of time. I, I, I love that. It's just, it, it shows me, it, to me, when I'm watching that, it shows me it's, it's someone who cares about what they're doing and that automatically makes me want to watch it and yeah. take in what you've got to say. Well, I think that's, that's really the difference between, you know, you. A, a six minute video that takes seven minutes to make and a six minute video that takes 20 hours to make. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, that's, that's where you can see the difference. Yeah. You know, reading that, so. Totally. And it, it's all things that I learned. Like, um, mm. I keep going back to learning that I don't mean to, to bash on too much about it, but like, um, for me, when I got into YouTube, it's like, I looked at my videos and I looked at other people. So it's like, well, why does theirs look better? Okay, so the background needs to be better. Okay, we'll make the background better. Why does it still not look as good? Okay, we need better lighting. Let's, mm. I actually, I don't have any dedicated video equipment. I use a Westcott Apollo 24x28 um, softbox with a video light inside it. So that softbox made for strobes, which I used to use for my portrait work. And I use that as my key light and stuff like that. The, the blue light that I have behind me is a, is a neon sign on my, in my apartment. Like, yeah. um, there's all these kind of things. And like, I, I put more effort into them in now because I, I kind of learned if, if I'm standing sat there on a locked off camera talking for 20 minutes, right. whether what I have to say is interesting is besides the point people get bored. So that I, I have lots of different camera shots. And I also feel like if you can, like this is going back to like your Tokyo when we used to write the blogs as well, is that if you can show something in a picture, it's better than doing it in words. So like I always try and film something rather than just say what I did because it's more mm -hmm. interesting for someone else to look at. And I quite like finding new or interesting shots. And the more I learn about video lighting, the more it helps me in like my day job, but it also helps me when I'm out photographing. It's all these, you, you think, because you have to think creatively, you have to think in, in a different way that you normally would. It's not like you're reading a rule book, you're thinking for yourself. So you find all these alternative ways of doing things. And I love that. That just keeps it, inspirational to me it keeps me interested it makes me want to do more of it and i often go off in a daydream when i think about what i could do for my next video and like what i could do for my next photo shoot and it's i like planning it down to the t and but then leaving yourself enough room to do what you need to do so what's your um so what's your plan with your youtube channel like what's what's the plan for the future with that honestly mm. You want me to, uh, really selfishly, I want the 100,000 plaque. <laughs> 100, <000 subscribers>. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I would love that. Yeah. Um, just so I can show off to No, but um, I don't know if you YouTube, but I, I don't know. I, it's, I'm not good at public. I never was good at public speaking. I was never a confident person. And I think these are important life skills you're learning. Yeah. I think it's important to be able to address an audience and convey what you need to say in the most efficient way as well. Um, and I like all of those skills that I didn't think about when I got into it, but the more I do it, the more I understand it and the more I, I've, I've see it's relevant. Um, do you find it interesting to look back at some of your earlier videos and just look at yourself and the way you were talking and then compare it to more recent videos? Do you see like a, like a, a progression in the way that you're, you are in front of the camera? Uh, yeah, I, or is it I still as cringeworthy as it was at the beginning? <laughs> because it kind of makes me feel like, oh, I'm terrible. I shouldn't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, I tend to watch videos like either that have done well or that haven't done well mm -hmm. in my channel. So it's like, 
understand what works well here and what didn't work well here. Um, but honestly, I really don't watch many of my YouTube videos I, after spending all that time in the edit bay, like going through like the um, colors, the sounds, yeah, effects, yeah, sure. the, the different shots. Like I'm done with seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. We, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we? That how, you know, our confidence has grown as these episodes have gone on sure. and, you know, we're, our ability to just, I don't know, talk off the cuff. I, I, I yeah, don't know how else to really. conversation out of nowhere. But, right you yeah. know and it, particularly if you you know luckily we're doing it together and you know we're, we're we're having a conversation on camera but if you're doing it on your own directly just to a lens well yeah. I, i've done that before myself and that's yeah. that's a lot harder than it sounds but you know what was weird like for us when we we started this podcast at the beginning of lockdown because literally you know, as far as uh, photography was concerned, literally all of the projects that I had set up for the next few months just got canceled. It was yeah, like it gone. literally went to zero, you know, and uh, we had just literally, um, you know, started to kind of to work together. Like I I had decided that uh, I wanted to uh, include video in my sort of corporate photography business. And so we just made plans. We set up some projects and it was all kind of starting to kind of work. And then like that, it was gone, you know, this is back down yeah. to zero. And so, you know, we were talking, we had been talking about the idea of, of doing a podcast for about maybe like six months or something up oh, to yeah. that point. And then literally we were just sitting, you know, talking on, on Zoom or whatever, you know, one day I'm just thinking like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Well, do you remember that podcast idea? Now is as good a time as ever, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and of course, at that point, you know, because we were in full lockdown, we couldn't be in the same room together. So it was literally, you know, us talking to each other on Zoom, you know, me being in my place, having a camera on me and Nick being in his place, having a camera on me. And then, uh, you know, me sending my files over to him and then, you know, putting everything to get together in the edit. And yeah. so when we got to the point where, you know, lockdown was eased to the point where we could actually be in the room together. I remember we were filming the first episode in, in this on this set, as it were, that was weird. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that weird? It's like, you yeah. know, all of a sudden we're actually talking to each other, like face to face, having a yeah, conversation, yeah, yeah. you know, rather than like after spending like, I don't know, whatever, like, you know, 13 weeks or something, just talking to each other on a screen. That yeah. was, that was really bizarre. Yeah. And it's yeah. amazing how the chemistry changed. Oh, it was you know, like, it was in, a really, in a really positive way. Yeah, yeah, you know, sure. Because you know, when you're talking over Zoom, you're always got that little pause and anticipation of someone talking and yeah. but when you're with someone you can talk over each other ever so slightly and get the point and and you just it just rolls it's right, especially different. when we're doing it over over zoom i had um i had in ears at, at one point and i could basically i could barely hear what nick was saying and so i was always half can you, guessing can you hear me now Kirsten? Well, okay. <laughs> But I was like, you know, I was like half guessing. And so my responses were sometimes when, when I, when I sort of listened back to some of them, I know exactly that I didn't really understand the question. This is new. Because I remember like, you know, because we had, we had, had constant audio problems. Like the first, I don't know, eight episodes or something we were constantly battling with like, there was too much bleed from, because at first I had a speaker, you know, in the room and it was like bleeding into the mic and, and then we had to use compression and it, it was just like, it took us a while to figure that one out, right? It, it was it was tough with you know your laptop playing back yeah. the audio from Zoom, your mic picking that up, and yeah. it being too loud for it to be gated out, and you couldn't. Oh, I'm getting into audio. I, I do audio as well yeah. in general, and and then we had oh, lighting cool. issues. You, so you couldn't face yeah. reverse it. it was, none of it was working. So it's like, well, we're gonna have to go headphones yeah. ultimately, right? Uh, sorry, okay. What, what and, we had, and, and we had like lighting issues. We had uh, in, in my place. Um, I had this. This uh, we built this little extension, and it had <laughs> it has a skylight, which yeah. sounded like a good idea at the time. And because I, I kind of figured, you know, or this is this is great uh, having a little extension to your house and you can use it as a, as a photo studio, you know. And of course, when lockdown started, I thought like it's great for video as well. But having a skylight without a blind or anything to block the light. It basically means that when it's a cloudy day, the lighting is one way. And then when it's sunny, you've got full on sun on your head. And it's just, man, it drove me around the bend. You know, I was like, in the end, I was like climbing up on the roof, like taping black <laughs> He's um, not joking. foam board. Oh, <laughs> the damn thing is just, oh, it's stupid. Um, so this is much better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was like, oh amazing. man, it's crazy. Absolutely amazing. But, um, 
But so okay, so hitting a hundred thousand is like your that's your goal. Where are you at now? Uh, subscribers, yeah, um, like three thousand six hundred, I think. Okay, that's good. We've hit thirty-five. 30. Nice. <laughs> Congratulations. Wicked. Yep. I know. We're, we're going to make it to 40. That's our big goal. Actually, 50. So if 50, all right? of your three and a half thousand subscribers <laughs> could also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, man, YouTube is a slog. It's, yeah, uh, it's really it is. Is a slog. But uh, you know, it's a deep and dark and wonderful place. Yeah. But it's impossible to understand. Oh, completely. <laughs> the, the one thing I find really um, interesting about the audio version of this of this podcast is that we can see on a map where people are mm. when they listen to our podcast. And yeah. that's the one thing, you know, because with YouTube, you've got the analytics and you look at, you know, you look at the stats all the time. And I, I found that maybe you got a little bit addicted, you know, to like looking at the, at the stats, maybe a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting a little weird. I check but, it at least once a day. Well. At, at least once an hour. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But but the thing that that I find like with the with the audio podcast is uh, that's really the, the one thing that kind of you know that really does it for me is like when I see there's a new listener in Novosibirsk, yeah. you know, or like there's a repeated downloads in Maryland, you know, or something, yeah. and you kind of you know there's somebody sitting there who's interested enough to listen to our episodes like on a weekly basis somewhere in the depths of Georgia. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone's like, picking up what you're putting down. I know. It's kind of, it's really cool. It's like, that's the, that's the thing um, that really, or like uh, we have a new, um, a new listener in Portugal. Did you know? In where? <laughs> in Portugal. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. Uh, that's the kind of thing that, that I find like that's the, that is really the, the most yeah, interesting Because um, number, numbers can get a bit, like whatever they kind of lose their meaning, yeah. but like when you start understanding like where your viewership is from, yeah, that's when it starts like blowing. It's like I've got people listening in like India or Japan. Yeah, like, exactly. How? Right. Like, I don't even speak their language. Like yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's pretty impressive. But yeah. like, then you see like oh, there's subtitle uses. Oh, okay. Like yeah, um, it, yeah. It, it always blows my mind that there's yeah. there's someone that's like outside of your immediate circle of friends. Well, that's, this that's is the listening. thing. Like in the very beginning, you can kind of. You know, I remember like in the very beginning we had like, you know, a listener in Scotland and I'm like, that's Dan. Of course it's Dan, you know? And then, yeah. then, then you get to the point where like there's a listener somewhere and you, you can't immediately think like, I don't know anybody there. Like, that's not yeah. somebody, that's not one of my friends, mm. you know, or family. That's yeah. like, uh, that's like not somebody in Calgary where I have a lot of family. Like, uh, okay. And I know, okay, well, that's probably, it's probably my cousins listening or whatever, you know? And or in Germany or something, and then all of a sudden you have somebody in the south of France, and you go, "Hmm, I don't know who that yeah. is." <laughs> you know, so whoever you are in Portugal when you're listening to the show, greetings. Yes, <laughs> did you just devil horns that? I, absolutely, you yeah. did, didn't you? Yeah, did. <laughs> for sure. Nice work. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I, I find stats weird and wonderful, frustrating at times, but sometimes yeah, yeah. just. Yeah. I don't know, but the podcasts are a great one because like people love to consume podcasts. And if you've ever driven across any state in America, you know, there's a lot of road, so you need something to listen to and, and yep. radio is often terrible. So Absolutely. podcasts are like possibly and I, I like going out for walks and listening to podcasts mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Like feels like you've got someone with you just kind of yeah. having a little yeah. chat. It's it's nice and you know, because uh, everybody's got their you know, those people who, who listen to podcasts have their kind of favorite podcasts and, and they're podcasts in, in all sorts of different formats. You know, you have the five minute yep. podcast, you've got a half mm -hmm. hour, an hour podcast or the Joe Rogan three hours plus, you know, yeah, yeah. podcast. And it just kind of depends on um, what is, the, you know, that, that you're doing it at, at that time. So when I go out for a run and now I'm going to be running for a half hour, I'm going to listen to a podcast that's about half an hour long, you know, and, yeah. and uh, when, you know, it's an off day and I really have nothing else to do. I might actually make it through an entire episode of Joe Rogan's podcast, <laughs> you know, if I'm lucky. Yeah. On Spotify. On Spotify. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have about three listeners on Spotify, did you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's interesting. Anyway, so, cool. So, um, so how did, how did lockdown in the United States, how did that affect you? 
just generally as a as a photographer. I mean, I know you you took the opportunity to to go out and shoot mm. cars in your neighborhood, but what did that do to you uh, as a photographer, just in general? Did it have an impact on on the business side of what you do, or what was sort of just explain what happened when lockdown actually hit? Yeah, so uh, for me, like first of all, from a business point of view, like photography, like I'll, I'll be honest and, and frank with you and your listeners, like it. it it does. I don't earn a huge amount of money from it. I, I'm. I don't actively seek work with it either. Uh, it, it's it's a pure passion project for me. And, and if someone wants to to pay me, then then great. I did, however, have a few photo shoots lined up, um, and understandably they all, they all got cancelled, which was uh, a bit of a bummer. Um, but in my day job, because photography is getting locked down, I work in CGI, so everyone who can't shoot turns. To CGI, and then all right. of a sudden, I am the busiest I've ever been right. in the last ten years. <laughs> wow! <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, I currently yeah. have three, maybe four projects that I'm looking after right now. Mm. So, so that, did that did that mean that you uh, you ended up obviously working from home? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. We, we everyone kicked out of their office. No one's allowed to go back to work. Uh, we we have a couple of different uh, like laws in here in, in California, and uh, non-essential workers are not allowed back into the office. Right. Uh, so, and I I was always an old school believer of like you should go to work. So you you're at work, and then when you come home from work, you leave work at work, and home is home. And so I was not looking forward to working from home. I was dragged kicking and screaming away from my desk mm. and plonked up on my breakfast bar in my kitchen. Um, and I it's, hated there's it. There's a butt here somewhere. It, well, yeah, I mean, I hated it for a long time. But the thing is now, like most things, most, most situations, they take a bit of time to adjust, but then you learn how to bend it into like your way. And what I soon realized is that often when I was at work, if I had an idea for a YouTube video or I wanted to edit a photo differently, couldn't do it at work. I had to wait until I get home and then I'd be too tired mm. to do it. And I couldn't be bothered or had forgotten. Whereas now if I'm sat there, uh, I've got my work laptop and I've got my MacBook here. If I've got something, I go, right, I want, it, I want to quickly have a look at that. I can just do it. I can do it whenever I want. So like, my working hours are a bit more flexible. Like, I start work way earlier than I, I should. That means I can, if I want to take time out to do a podcast or if I want to go out yeah. for a two-hour walk down the beach or something, I can. And I can mm. just make up the time whenever. Um, yeah. And that's, that's been the biggest change for me, like, like mentally. It's, it's, it's just like reallocating your time and rethinking what your normal work structure is. Like just being a bit more fluid with it and, then, and doing whatever feels right at your time. I mean, it doesn't mean I sit there and do nothing all day. I still smash all my normal work, but if I feel the urge to make a tweak on a video or edit a photo or, or look up a shoot location, I don't feel guilty about doing it. And that's been really liberating. I still hate working from home because I don't have an office. I have a breakfast bar, which means I have to tear everything down every time I want to cook uh, yeah. and then put it back up. I would love to have um, a, like a spare bedroom or something that I can turn into like my YouTube studio or like my office like home office workspace, that'd be yeah. amazing. But do you know yeah, how much rent is out in here in California? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I'm in a not too dissimilar uh, situation in the sense that I just, I literally just build a desk, um, which is kind of in the, it's sort of in the living room area. Yeah. But because for the same reason, we don't have a spare bedroom, but um, it's, a, it's a dedicated area now. So right. that, you know, I actually have a desk with some shelves and, you know, put some lighting up, and it's a comfortable, creative place for me to be to work. It's a zone. Um, yeah, it's a zone, exactly. And and it's not yeah. ideal in the sense that, you know, it is like practically in the living room. And, you know, I have kids, so, you know, they're not doing anything. And if they decide <laughs> they just want to hang out on the couch, then that's what's happening, you know. But, but at least it's a zone, and it's not like I don't have to set up my computer all the time, take yeah. things down. And so at least I've sort of, gotten around that problem finally after 17 weeks in lockdown <laughs> yeah know? but but yeah I mean, um so how does it work in, a, in the u.s at the moment is your um so is the whole lockdown thing relaxing or what's where are you where are you at relatively speaking? we're kind of similar to how it is in the uk um mm. 
uh, we're I don't think we're allowed any more gatherings any larger than six people I think it is right um, we have to wear face masks outside yeah. and in shops and in restaurants basically everywhere we go mm. um, restaurants aren't allowed to do indoor dining there's only like outdoor patio dining is allowed um, and each table's kind of like six feet away from the other so mm. it's been very interesting watching a few businesses around here um, adapt and change uh, to, to that kind of policy it's, it's kind of cool um, yeah I mean you're allowed outside um, as, as many times as you want to go they I think you're allowed to do internal flights although you'll probably have an entire jet to yourself if you if you do mm. that I'm quite lucky California's are very health conscious and like uh, germophobic in general so they kind of everyone stays <laughs> apart apart from in the supermarket that's a bit annoying they get real close to you then mm. and uh, but yeah i mean it's kind of the same except we have to wear a mask like more often mm. um and i had to go and attend a, a photo shoot up north um uh, two weeks ago and i had to have a covid test I had mm. to, uh, when I arrived, I had to have my temperature taken. I had to wear a face mask and then a face shield. Mm. Um, and it was in, in the valley as well. So it was about 35, 36 degrees centigrade. And I'm inside a warehouse that was rather warm and you're all like masked up. Yeah. And so sweat pouring down your face. And that was that 12 hour day or something like that. It's pretty yeah. brutal. So, I mean, obviously, you're British. And you're in the US and all of this is going on. Do you, do you feel kind of cut off from from Britain? Like, how does that feel? Um, no, I don't. I don't feel uh, cut off. I, mm. First of all, I should explain. I, I've never been one to get homesick, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm fine being by myself. Mm. It doesn't bother me. Um, but the things like WhatsApp, Zoom, and Skype, or whatever, like I can speak to my family whenever I want. What is a little bit uh, uh, lonely, I suppose, is like we're the last people to go to sleep. So, right. Mm. If I if I have a con- like, want to have a conversation in the evening, what's done in my work day, then all of my friends and family in the UK, well, they're in bed, and probably rightly so. So, mm. you know, uh, my mornings are much much more stressful than they used to be in London. Like in London, you wake mm. up for everyone else, and you kind of give each other a bit of room until you get a coffee. Yeah. Whereas, whereas here, like open up my laptop and it's like I'm getting yelled at by like, multiple sources of yeah. information. It's like, oh, this is a lot. I'm going to need a lot of coffee like, to get through this one. I used to feel the uh, same thing working w- when I did work for Amazon. So you, obviously it's a very global company. But yeah. those, yeah, we had London, Seattle yeah. and India and mm. Japan. They were right. the, 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 hub, the core hubs across the globe. So yeah. you'd wake up and you'd have everything coming from from India. Yeah. You'd deal with all of that, deal with everything you have to do with that day, and then you'd pass it all on to the US. <laughs> there yeah. You go. There you go. <clears throat> deal with that. And then it, the cycle <laughs> just continues. What a nightmare. Yeah. Absolutely. I, mean, nightmare. I, I know what that's like to just feel like people are just literally scraping their plate onto yours like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. every morning. It's uh, It can get a bit tiresome. But like, yeah. the thing is, you you just have to cope with it. It does mean that your morning's very busy, but then your afternoons are a bit more peaceful, a bit more relaxing, like go for a run, go for a skate or, or whatever. No one's going to know. <laughs> yeah. Drink a go few beers. A, go for a skate. That's very Californian. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> very Venice Beach, <laughs> <I> bought, in fact. <laughs> I bought a longboard as soon as I moved out here. Oh, hey. there you go. There's so many people doing it. I should be doing it. Um, uh, I hadn't skated in about 20 years and it did not go well I actually went into the store and I, I found the longboard I was like do you mind if I like have a go on it and he was like yeah go like, out back go and help yourself and I stood on it and I was like I'm too old and too fat and too scared I'm not fine this. <laughs> and then I left the store and I was walking down by the beach and I was like no you're an idiot Dave. Like, you went there to buy a board go back buy that board yeah. So I bought it, and then I was like, "Well, I've got to skate home now." Rather ambitiously, thinking that I could skate three miles home, oh. and I apologize. I've never apologized to more people in my life because <laughs> <laughs> I kept falling off the board, and it kept shooting I'm off. Coming at through, people. I'm coming through. Yeah. <laughs> I can't turn. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love um, that. It, yeah, it was terrifying. Oh man, I've never done it myself. Have you never skated? I, I've I've been on a skateboard when I was. Yeah. 
significantly younger than I am right now. <laughs> I think my I, I think I could stand up. My back will go. No, oh, well. <laughs> no, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I used to skate. To, I used to skate to school, and um, our school was at the bottom of this like really steep hill, and oh. it's like a probably about a so a mile and a half decline. Um, and it ended in a really sharp right-hand curve that went over a bridge. And then my school was, my high school was on the other side of the bridge. And I used to skate to school. And I used to basically, um, I used to literally speed down this hill, you know, cut that corner, despite the traffic and everything, like cut that corner at breakneck speed. And um, usually I would make it, but there usually. were occasions where it didn't. And I'd like, I'd rock up at school, you know, mm. with like ripped jeans and like blood and everything else. And I remember like just walking into school and every so often my teacher would be like, yeah, didn't make it today, huh? <laughs> oh, <laughs> didn't make it at all. But then on the way back, um, I used to do the, the kind of the stereotypical like back to the future thing where yeah. like you're, the, you're at the bottom of the hill and you'd wait for some kind of truck or something. I didn't hold on. Yeah, you just wait for like, uh, you know, a truck or something to come by um, at the right speed and you just kind of hang on the back of that. <laughs> they pull you up the pull you up the hill. Wow. Yeah, right. that's what it is. Right, Marty. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> if I did that, I'd look like Doc at the end yeah. of that <laughs> <laughs> never, never been good doing any tricks. That's not my thing. No, yeah. no, 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 no. No, I don't know if you guys know, like, Venice Beach, it has, like, that big concrete skate park. And, like, yeah. It's, yeah. it's quite nice to go down there and just, like, watch everyone because that is, what they do is just phenomenal. But yeah, different I, I, def I definitely could not do that. Yeah, I used to, um, I used to say like you know I used to skateboard um, as a as a commute type of yeah. type of tool you know that's the thing. Um, so I've never really been big on tricks or anything. Just before I left um, left working in London, people it was a big thing using those little manual scooters. Oh yeah, right? the yeah. fold up ones, right? And they'd be skating, they'd jump off the train, jump on that, and scoot down the road to the office like half a mile maybe mm -hmm. at, at most. Which in itself, I don't necessarily have an issue with, but it's when they start getting those scooters out in the office and start scooting from desk to desk. <laughs> They're the people you want to throw, throw <laughs> out the window. And yeah. <laughs> frustrated the hell out of me. So just scooting around. What We're not it? in Google. This isn't Google. Yeah. You're in London. Yeah. <laughs> See, the problem is, you know, they always come up with, uh, they come up with new things like all the time. And, you know, you're like, you get into grips with longboard and then you see a one wheel and you go, whoa, one yeah. wheel? What? <laughs> I, want, I want a one wheel so bad. Oh my God. Yes. My hey, daughter's got a YouTube channel. I should have a one wheel. Well, okay, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My daughter saw, uh, saw a one wheel for the first time the other day and she's just like, you should have seen her eyes. She just went, whoa, no, no, yeah. you don't have to push. Oh my God. Yeah. It's got one wheel. <laughs> you know? Awesome. Biblically expensive as well. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it. That's it. That's why you got to go to, you got to make it to 100,000 because I'm pretty sure you can get sponsored. <laughs> you, so, on that, on that, because you mentioned your YouTube channel, um, you need 1,000 subscribers, um, which like, um, is, is not particularly difficult. If you go and beg, plead, or whatever, you can get, you can get. What's hard is you need 4,000 watch hours as well. Yeah, and I think you guys would have an advantage because your long form content is YouTube. Yeah. So like, like uh, your podcast on YouTube. So I reckon you guys, once you get to a thousand, will probably yeah. monetize like that. Because when I crossed over that the thousand threshold, it wasn't until I got like two thousand five hundred until I could actually get monetized. Right? Well, see, we have we have an advantage because we only have thirty five subscribers. So if we we only have to bribe thirty five people to watch. Like just spend a hundred hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've got if you've got a VPN, just like log into different. Oh, I do. <laughs> so you know, so if we can make it to thirty six um, after after this video, that'd be phenomenal. Yeah, stunning. <laughs> I, I, I better make sure I'm subscribed, otherwise I'll be a terrible like guest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh. Right. Dave, where can uh, people find you on uh, social? Where, where, yeah. what, what's your YouTube channel, your Instagram, Facebook, all, all of that? Uh, rather conveniently, I am at Shooting Dave on everything, like Facebook, ah. Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, awesome. whatever. Like, I'm on there, at Shooting Dave. Fantastic. So, yeah, I highly recommend uh, check out uh, Dave's Instagram and his YouTube channel. Um, I've certainly learned a couple of things, and I'm looking yeah. forward to, to more videos for sure. Hell, yeah. Right, I just, I just released one today on uh, using gelled lights uh, in a photo shoot. 
I saw that pop up. I saw the cover photo hmm. and I saw the photo for that on your Instagram feed as yeah. well. And the photo is awesome. <laughs> Thanks, man. Really, 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 really cool. Anyone watching, go go check it out. You'll you'll know what what it is. I mean, hmm. garage. There's a pink stroke kind of purple light knocking about in it. You'll you'll see the hmm. photo. Just go and hone in on that and check it out. I won't say anymore. Awesome photo. Yeah. Thank you. Right, Dave. It was it was an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. No, no, thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. So this is it. We've come to the end of uh, episode 17. Is it 17? Yeah. Episode 17 <laughs> of the Camera Shake Podcast. I hope uh, you enjoyed this as much as we did. And uh, we'll be seeing you again every Thursday. <laughs>